You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we help you make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your everyday life. I'm Phil, and today I am full of joy to be joined by professor and author Karen Reeder to discuss her new book, The Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John 4 After Church 2. Now, friends, this book, this is one I think everyone should read, not only because it has major implications for our church and for the world today, but... Karen does an amazing job of taking us into the context of John 4 and helping us understand the story in a way that I think is much better and closer to the reality of the story of Jesus meeting and talking with the Samaritan woman than what many of us have been taught and believed. I know I used to think very differently than I think about this story now. And so I am so glad you are here today to hear this conversation. And I highly recommend checking out the book, which you can find in the description below. Now, while you are down there in the description, in the show notes, I would love to tell you about a few of the other links we have. First, are links to our Christ-centered yoga classes on YouTube. These are classes where we combine movement with breath work, prayer, meditation, and scripture. And this is a practice that has changed our lives and we know has been a blessing to many and can be a blessing to you as well. And on top of that, you'll also find a link to our memberships where we have yoga classes, Christ-centered for people of all ages, styles, skill levels, lengths, all meant to help you stretch your body and your faith. So you can get a free uh, three-day trial to that. Check that out in the description below. You will also see a link to set up a call with me for one-on-one spiritual direction, which I now offer in person and via Zoom. This is a space where we work through your story, looking for where God has spoken and moved in the past and the present and what that might mean for the future. So we talk about all kinds of things. Some people want more spiritual disciplines to practice. Other people are talking about anxiety they have or God's calling in their life, all kinds of really good stuff. I work with all budgets. I believe that this is something that is helpful for everyone, so I don't want money to be a barrier. But at the link below, you can set up a free call to discuss spiritual direction and what it would look like for us to begin that journey together. Then finally, friends, you also find a link to our Patreon page, where for just $5 a month, you can help support the ministry, keep the mic on, keep these interviews coming, reaching people all over the world with this good news, with this way of following Jesus, and also gain access to some really awesome exclusive content, including live events and uh, many series that we've done, including ones on imaginative prayer, Psalm 23, Revelation, People of Lent, guided meditations, and more. So friends, you can find everything that I just discussed in the description below. We would love to be a part of your journey in one of those spaces. But friends, with all of that said, without further ado, I'm so excited for this conversation here is my discussion with Karen Reeder. Karen, welcome to the Rua Space Podcast. Such an honor to have some space to talk to you today. Thanks so much for the invitation to be with you. I appreciate it. So can you share with us a little bit just of who you are and where you work and what you do? Yeah, for sure. So um, 
I am a professor of New Testament at Westmont College, which is in Santa Barbara, California. I grew up in Illinois, and I'm still, even after 15 years at Westmont, enjoying the nice weather we have here. Um, yeah, so I teach our introduction to New Testament class that all of our students take. I also teach Greek and upper division classes, and I'm co-coordinator of our gender studies program. So I get to teach classes on gender and the Bible and theology as well. Very cool. Well, I have to say, after working through your book, The Samaritan Woman's mm -hmm. Story, I'm sad I didn't get to take any classes. Yeah. With you. I, didn't, I didn't go to Westmont, but I have a very similar story of moving from Illinois. We've now moved to Florida. And so mm -hmm. I sort of get the uh, weather yes. component. I find myself a little more full of joy, a little bit easier That's in, right. the, in the 80 degrees. So yeah. I know California is similar. So mm -hmm. this book, The Samaritan's Woman's Story, um, I'm just going to say off the bat, I recommend to everyone, you know, we, we can't cover everything in this podcast mm -hmm. and we wouldn't want to because we want you to go read the book, but yes. it is one of the books I do highly recommend. Now, I try to only bring people onto the podcast who I think will be helpful, but there's some that stand above and beyond in this book, I feel like is one of those. Um, so could you sort of take us into um, the larger issue? Because of course, we are going to be talking about the Samaritan woman story in John 4. And this is a podcast about spiritual disciplines, but Bible reading is, and it turns out that the way we read the Bible has quite far reaching effects. Absolutely. So I've thought about this book for a long time because I love John 4 so much and I really wanted to explore the Samaritan woman story and maybe think about how some of our cultural assumptions that we make about women in the Bible might have blinded us to some elements of the story. But I would say that really I didn't think seriously enough about writing the book until the Church 2 movement began in the fall of 2017. So Church 2 is an offshoot of the Me Too movement. So as women and men started sharing stories of um, salt and abuse and harassment in the workplace, it spread to people sharing stories about abuse in Christian communities. And that made me start thinking about how our biblical interpretations actually have consequences for the way that we treat each other in the church and in the wider world. Yeah. That, yeah. I think that that's, that's super important because, you know, I have, I've done the degrees, I've done the mm -hmm. work, all of that. And this was still one of those stories that I'm just going to admit for years I had wrong because, mm -hmm. and as you go through the book, the dominant interpretation for thousands of years has been that the Samaritan woman was sinful, was an adulterer. And, you know, as much as I was taught sort of get into the history, get into the context, we still miss things. We're still blind to things. Why, why was I so blind in, in <laughs> right. this story in particular? Right. It's, uh, it's really remarkable. The earliest interpretations we have of John 4, going all the way back to Tertullian in the late second, early third century, the woman is consistently represented as someone who is just imbued with sexual sin, right? She is an adulterer. She is a prostitute in some interpretations of the story. And that really colors the way we look at the rest of her representation in John 4 and her participation in this conversation with Jesus. And then that plays out in how we look at women in the churches around us, um, that 
extreme sexualization of women in scripture. And the Samaritan woman is just one example of this. If there are many more um, examples, Mary Magdalene, for instance, the woman who anoints Jesus' feet in Luke chapter seven, just so many narratives of women in the Bible, we interpret through a really sexual lens. And then how does that affect how we look at women in the church around us? And what are we missing um, how are we limiting women? And therefore, how are we limiting our church experience and the way that we worship God and represent God in the world? I mean, why do you think it started that way so early on? Mm. Because, and I know that, you know, quote unquote, new interpretations, while it's not new for a lot of people, mm -hmm. it might be mm -hmm. new. And they say, well, this is the way the church has always done it. Um, why do you think it started that way? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think, for the really early church, it has a lot to do with some of the fears uh, surrounding sex in the ancient world, um, that even in the context of marriage, to have sex with a spouse was somehow wrong or sort of adjacent to sin. Therefore, if you have a woman who has been married five times, oh my goodness, clearly she must be so lost to sin. Um, I think that as well, there is it's particularly visible in some of the interpreters I discuss in the book, but there's an attempt to limit women's voice in the church or women's participation in the church. So when you have a story about a woman who has a long conversation with Jesus, who then goes and preaches in her village about Jesus and people believe because of her word, that can be really concerning. If you think, no, women, women's voices in the church are maybe dangerous, they might lead us astray, then how could we interpret this? story in a way that minimizes some of the Samaritan woman's influence. Yeah, and it stuck with us. Right? Yes, <laughs> yes. For 1800 years, however far we want to go back. Um, mm -hmm. Why have we not maybe opened up and changed this? And of course, many denominations are right. Many denominations now will, will ordain women. And mm -hmm. my hope is, as you said, after Me Too and Church Too, hopefully some structures and things are, all, are also mm -hmm. changing. And maybe this is way too big of a question about the bardship of Christian <laughs> tradition changing. But um, why have we been so slow on this issue, do you think, today? Um, regardless of how we read John 4, how do we continue to miss this as a church of abuse and um, sexualization and um, blaming women for yeah, right. enticing men, right? Like, yes, why, why, yes. How, how does that continue? Is it just so into our psychology or what is it? Um, so I don't want to claim to speak for everyone course, here, yeah. but I do see um, definitely simply the weight of the tradition, right, that really is as much as perhaps as Protestants, as evangelicals, we might want to say we come to the text to encounter God um, on the Bible's own terms, and we're not bringing a heavy weight of tradition with us. But of course, that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> we do bring the weight of tradition with us in the ways that we were taught to read the Bible and understand scripture from Sunday school onwards, really are influential in what we see in a text. Um, so some of those blinders, I think, do make us focus in on um, marriage, sex, when a woman is brought in, maybe there's something sexual going on. We're sort of primed to look for that because that has happened so often in interpretations, sermons, Bible studies. Um, I'd also say that it's a reflection of the culture around us, right? 
So think of advertisements, think of movies, think of television, just across the board, we are surrounded by a culture that sexualizes women from a pretty young age. Um, even the clothes that you buy for little kids tend to have that component. Um, so we both are trained by the way that we've read the Bible before, by the way people have helped us read the Bible before, the questions we ask, and also by the culture around us to see when a woman is in a story, sex must be there too. Mm. Well, I think that's an important point you made that, or, or at least, <laughs> I don't want to say you're making this point, but what came <laughs> to mind for me as you were speaking, at least, was that we don't just come to scripture as if scripture is a thing in a vacuum box right. that we can sort right. of just read and say, well, I don't bring myself to the story mm -hmm. at all. And I think this is sort of, if we're going to talk about a spiritual formation component of reading scripture, this to me is, is a prime example that we can never just assume that we're coming to scripture as a separate thing and yes. maybe heightens the the importance of reading with people who are very different than us. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, our own histories, our own cultures, our own family stories, uh, all of these really influence what we notice when we read a biblical story, a biblical narrative. And if we're reading with other people, with uh, men and women, with people of different races and ethnicities and languages, uh, we can bring different perspectives together in a text and have a real, I find it so exciting when those conversations can happen because then we can all learn from each other. Yeah, absolutely. And as a teacher, maybe you run into this um, mm. or professor, you know, um, that when we then do start to read outside of the normal box, right? Like mm -hmm. you're, you have a lot of kids coming to college who maybe have never been outside of their parents' tradition. Yes. And I know this has happened for me. So I'm assuming for, for students and even people who listen to this who are in their seventies or eighties, it's gonna continue to happen. When someone comes across, oh my goodness, I'm now reading a womanist interpretation mm -hmm. or a, um, any feminist, if yes, you want to talk, yes. you know, there's a, there's a million different ways to, to read this. And all of a sudden the previous boxes are sort of being broken open mm -hmm, and that can mm -hmm. be really uncomfortable. Yes. And it leads to questions like, well, am I abandoning the faith of my mm -hmm, parents? Mm -hmm, Is it okay? Mm -hmm. Do you have any words of encouragement for when it feels <laughs> like things are falling apart, but you're actually maybe getting closer to truth? Right. Yeah. So I think be encouraged. <laughs> this is a journey that we're on together um, in, in seeking to understand the complexity of God's work in the world. Um, yeah. So I do. I certainly have had this conversation with so many students who um, come into my classes, whether it's just the introductory survey class or whether it's a more advanced class digging into a particular book. And they come to me at some point and say, you know, <laughs> I thought I knew things. <laughs> I thought I understood these factors, but now you've added on all of these layers. I've seen the ancient context is different from our context in these ways that make it hard for me to read the Bible devotionally. That's often an issue that people will come to you or they say, you know, I just, I don't know how to hold all of these things in tension with each other and still um, seek God through that. And I think we don't have to give up on 
on our own traditions. We just need to recognize what we're coming to the text with. And I think being willing to listen to other people, to learn from other people and their experience of God in the world um, also helps us see see perhaps we're missing ways that God is at work around us or through us or in us um, because of our own our own situation and and what we expect to see and to have happen in the world. Yeah, it's yeah. it's certainly a journey, right? And yes. we I think anytime, I mean I feel like at least if I ever feel like, hey, I've got the whole thing now, I've got the picture, I've got God. I think that's an idol all of a sudden, right? Like, yeah, right. like to, to think that and, and, and that's sort of dangerous. And so it can be scary to read other authors and it can make us uncomfortable, but I don't know. I think if we get too comfortable in our faith, we probably should worry more than the mm-hmm. times we're uncomfortable, yes. at least in yes. our experience. Yeah. A little bit of doubt, a little bit of questioning can be good to spur you to growth. 100%. So, okay. So in this book, then let's, let's dig in a little bit to the actual story of John chapter four. So I think the, the dominant narrative as we understand it is usually, this was a woman who, and we don't normally think too deeply about this, but Hey, she's been married a lot of times. It's her fault. It's because of her Mm -hmm. desires. So Jesus speaking to her is extremely scandalous. And this is just a great salvation story Yes, that her yes. background is just used to sort of share how great Jesus is. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. It's not to say that Jesus isn't a great savior. Of us yes, absolutely. Yeah, However, that's a beautiful story. <laughs> yes, it's just not this story. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So, so could you start to take us into then how do you sort of understand this story? If it's not mm-hmm. about that, what is it really inviting us to see? Mm-hmm. So In John's gospel, location, 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 (laughs) the location of the stories that he tells really matters. And so I think the first thing we can notice in John 4 is that the story is really firmly located in Samaria at the well dug by Jacob on land that he and his sons bought to live on. So this is really the first piece of the promised land that the people of God have for a dwelling place. So that makes it theologically very significant. But in the first century, in Jesus' day, it's not Jews who live there, it's the Samaritans. These other people who, um, in the time after the exile, those Jews who had returned from exile to the land of Israel, they said, look, you people are not Jews. You aren't us. You're different from us. And so we have sort of a branching of the family tree then. And the Samaritans built their own temple, which happens to be on a hill overlooking Jacob's well. Um, The Jews, of course, have their temple in Jerusalem. So there's a division here in identity and the location of the story really drives that home. Then the woman's response to Jesus when he asks her for water and she says, oh, hold on. (laughs) I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. These things, you know, we don't get along with each other. Why are you asking me for water? This story is not about the woman's sexual sin. It is about the divided identity of God's people and the question of who are the true people of God? Is it the Jews or the Samaritans? Mm. So much good stuff in this story. (laughs) So So then they have this great dialogue Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. another sort of little insider tip that I love you that you bring up is paying attention to how much space someone is given in a story and that 
in many of other Jesus stories, the, the other characters sort of talk, then Jesus talks for a long time, but the Samaritan woman gets a lot of space to respond. She does. Yes. Yeah. So very often in Jesus, in John's gospel, Jesus in a conversation with someone, they will ask a question and then he gives a sermon and we never hear from the other person again. But the Samaritan woman is a consistent conversation partner through this chapter. She has just a little bit less speaking space, a little fewer words than Jesus himself does. And her responses and her questions really drive the narrative forward. So she is an active participant and an important participant in the revelation Jesus makes here. And then she goes off and testifies about it. Yes. And yes. people come to Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And what I love at the end of the story is that the people in her village tell the woman, we believe because of your word, mm -hmm. as well as because of Jesus' word. So the woman's word and Jesus' word are equal of equal importance in the belief of her villagers, her neighbors. Um, they respect her, they listen to her, and they believe because of her testimony. So yeah. that's a very different picture than social outcast. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I think noticing how her neighbors respond to her should make us question why we think that she must be a sexual a sexual sinner who is a social outcast. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you have a whole chat. I think it's a whole chapter. There was mm -hmm. quite a bit on it that I really appreciated where you went into marriage customs of the mm -hmm. day mm -hmm. and sort of explained that really the marriage sort of um, experience that she's had, while it may not have been the most common experience, mm -hmm. does not automatically mean she's done anything wrong. Even cohabitating you go into was a way of marriage mm -hmm. and acceptable mm -hmm. practice at the time. So I don't want to have you give away everything. <laughs> right. <because> again, it's <laughs> so good. But um, we're right then in assuming that looking at her marriage as one isn't really the focus of the story, but mm -hmm. two mm -hmm. is really no reason to believe she was in sin. No, absolutely. Uh, her story is certainly unusual. And I think that can be um, helpful to us when we think, why does Jesus even bring this up? If he's not accusing her of sin, then why mention her marital history? Um, in that case, John's gospel has this trick of Jesus revealing something that he shouldn't know about someone. And then that person responding with faith and belief, which is exactly what happens with the Samaritan woman. He tells her something that no one would know. And she responds by, um, by identifying him as a prophet, as someone who she can bring her deep theological questions to. Um, I also think, yeah, that the assumption that a woman who's been married five times has done something wrong, and that's why she's had so many marriages. Well, we don't have any evidence of that. There were a lot of reasons that a marriage would end, um, like death. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, people died young in the first century, um, malnutrition, injury, illness. Um, so it wouldn't be unusual for a woman to have several husbands because of, of um, her husband's dying and then she gets remarried. And divorce doesn't necessarily happen only because of adultery. There are other reasons that people were divorced in the first century. So yeah. Um. Yeah, you had a very robust <laughs> argument on this. And so I do really, once again, you know, go and check that out because I think it is a very, very compelling mm -hmm. argument for reading this in a different way. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, then she becomes a evangelist or mm -hmm. a, a, mm -hmm. a testimony of, of the good news sharing with other people. Mm -hmm. And 
that is an important part for the church today because we actually, yes. I mean, what's blowing my mind is we actually come away with the exact opposite point, right. not only the wrong point, but actually the exact counterpoint that the story is really trying to make, mm-hmm. or at least mm-hmm. a component of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think John's gospel represents this woman to us as the model disciple, someone who talks to Jesus, does not understand right away, but through a conversation comes to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing, um, and then shares that news with everybody because she is so inspired by this conversation. Uh, That's what John's gospel wants us to do as well as readers, is to come to knowledge of Jesus through our interactions with him by reading this gospel. Um, and then go out and witness to others and tell them. Um, yeah, so why can't we see this woman as a model, not just for women in the church, but also for men in the church to learn from and to follow? No, 100%. So if we, so if we begin reading this story as you are um, suggesting, and it's now 100% the way I'm reading yeah. this story, um, <laughs> what, what difference would that make in our, in our communities? What what changes might it inspire in our churches? Mm-hmm. I think one thing um, to continue what I was just saying, um, I am concerned sometimes when in a church, the only time we hear about women is on Mother's Day. <laughs> I think mm, there are a lot of really fantastic stories about women in the Bible and about women participating in the work of the kingdom of God. Uh, why don't we highlight those stories throughout the year? Um, I think that behind that sort of limitation of when do we talk about women in the church is this idea that women's stories in the Bible are only important for women. Mm. So women's Bible studies might explore women in the Bible, but is there anything there for men to learn from? I don't know. Probably not. Men aren't going to be interested in a woman's perspective or a woman's experience, but I think that that's absolutely wrong. Mm -hmm. The Bible includes stories of men and women to give us models for our own lives of discipleship, and we should all be learning from, from those stories. So there's one very practical thing I think we can do with the Samaritan woman story is preach it to men and to women. Yeah. And then sort of the undercurrent that we had was the, as we talked about the, the, the sexualization of the mm-hmm, character mm-hmm. and sort of the lower place women will um, end up in, in a mm-hmm. church community. And then it leads to abuse and those sort of things. I mean, and again, this is a question way bigger than, you know, it would need to be multiple episodes of podcasts mm-hmm. about, about changes, but what are maybe some basic things? Because maybe some pastors are listening to this, but a lot of people just sort of attend church and Mm -hmm, maybe mm -hmm. they are elders or deacons or, you know, men and women on the board in positions of leadership, or maybe even just attending a community. What might be some things you might encourage people with or challenge people with to say, hey, start thinking about this in terms of your community being a safe space, being Mm -hmm, a place mm -hmm. where these things don't get shoved under the rug or pushed to the side. Yeah, so certainly I think um, biblical interpretation and the way that we talk about the Bible has an important place there. Um, There are a lot of really good and talented and trained people who have much better skills than I would be able to offer in terms of how do you create a truly safe space? How do you set up? Yeah, how do you set up sort of the um, reporting mechanisms and 
How do you provide counseling? Um, how do you even train pastors and church leaders to understand how to make sure that a church is safe, make sure that leaders are, are um, not abusing their power over parishioners? Um, but for me as a biblical scholar, I think recognizing our habits of biblical interpretation really matters here. So if we come to a story with the assumption that if a woman is in the story and if anything is mentioned about a woman's sin or marriages or if she's divorced, um, we sometimes have a gut reaction to think there's something sinful going on here because of this association we've created um, between women and sexual sin. Um, so I would want to challenge us if we find ourselves doing that, stop and think again and um, consider, are there other things that we might be missing if we just focus in on the issue of sexual sin in a story about a woman? Yeah. Um, I really like that because then for everyone, there's sort of an encouragement to say, listen to how our churches are talking about these yes. stories, listen to the yes. language that's used and maybe even look for, this is a little harder, but look for what's being left out, right? Yes. What characters yes. are being left out, whose voices are not being heard. Mm -hmm. And that can sort of key us in, not necessarily to say, oh, there's all these bad things going on behind the scene, but at least to say, hey, maybe we can start to bring in other voices. Mm -hmm. Maybe we mm -hmm. can start to think about how we're talking about it because for some exactly. people, they may not even realize it. Yes, yes, because we've been so so conditioned um, by our traditions, by the way the church from the second century onwards has, has represented women in scripture. We're so conditioned to make those connections, um, but maybe the Bible's not doing that. Maybe the Bible's showing us a different way. Um, connected to that, I think here's a really specific example of the way that a biblical text and its interpretation has been twisted in the church. Um, the stumbling blocks passages in the Bible, right? So Jesus says, if, you know, you look at a woman and you lust after her, that's a stumbling block. So dig out your eye and, you know, cut off your hand, and, right? <laughs> um, those passages have most often been turned around so that the woman becomes the stumbling block. Um, that's not what Jesus is saying in Matthew or in Mark's gospel. Jesus is rather saying to the observer to control him or herself. Uh, it's not the fault of the person you're looking at, but it's your fault in the way that you're looking, um, the intent that you're looking with. So there's an issue where we can stop calling women stumbling blocks. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and change the way that we represent the issues of um, of sexual temptation in our churches today. I, I think it's important to talk about these issues because there are so many temptations in the world around us, um, but we need to pay attention to what, what those texts are actually saying about our own self-control and our own um, intent. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's so easy and tempting to see. I mean, this is Jesus' story of, hey, don't just see the, the dust in someone else's eye. Right, Look at the, right. You know, the log in our source. And it's so easy to turn it and say, oh, it's because of that. Mm -hmm. But most often it seems Jesus is saying for you, 
it's not what others are doing, mm-hmm. but look inside yourself. Yes. Do you have some authors you might recommend to people to say, hey, if you want to get started further on this journey, other than your own book, maybe <laughs> some voices they wouldn't have heard before that you would mm-hmm. say, hey, these, these are some great places to start. Um, I would say one book that I have come back to over and over um, is Ruth Everhart. Um, She wrote, sorry, I'm just flipping to look for the title just to make sure I get it right. Um, Yeah, she wrote a book called The Me Too Reckoning, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct. And I find her, she's a pastor herself. She's been in churches that have experienced um, the crisis of assault. Um, And she just has such wisdom in helping us think through the ways that our churches may be failing people um, in the way that we teach on these issues and making really helpful suggestions for how to create safe spaces and teach our children and youth and adults really well on issues of sexual morality. So I really recommend her book. Excellent. And she's a contemporary writer. Yes, she is. Do you also have any authors you can think of from the ancient world? Because Mm. often, as you said, in church history, this was such a difficult issue. Are there any ancient authors where you're like, yeah, they, they were on the right path? Yeah, yeah. Um, I like a lot of what John Chrysostom has to say about biblical texts and life in the church. Um, So that's taking us way back to the early church. Um, I do think, I mean, none of us are perfect. So there are things that even there that I think, oh, John, (laughs) could we rethink some of these, (laughs) these points? But I do think that he has a lot of really helpful insight into the biblical text and how we should seriously, we should be taking it. I also really like, so this is again, very early church, um, a woman named Paula, who was a friend of Jerome and possibly even participated in his work of biblical interpretation. She um, was Yeah, so Jerome talks about her as someone who is more gifted with the ancient languages than he was. (laughs) So yeah, there's some interesting, we don't hear enough about her to know, but I think there's some interesting allusions there that perhaps she was was an important part of his own work. But she was also the head of a monastic community of women in Bethlehem. Uh, And we have one letter from her where she talks about making pilgrimage around the Holy Land. And we get a little bit of a taste of how she might've interpreted the Bible through her own life journey, literal Mm. life journey through the land. Um, But then Jerome also writes um, a eulogy for her in which he praises her as a biblical interpreter, as someone who was a treasured colleague of his own. Um, Yeah, so I really think going back to some of these ancient women's voices can, can be helpful in challenging some of our own assumptions about the history of the church. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like, did you include one of the quotes about Paul in the book? Somewhere? I did, yes. I like when you said it, I'm like, I feel like she was mentioned. I was yes. just sort of searching through what page it might it's have been It's in on, the I conclusion. It's on okay. page 179. Do you want me to read it for you? Because yeah. I really like this quote. Yes, yeah. please. So this is from Jerome's letter, um, which is his eulogy for Paula after her death. And he's writing about some of the journeys that she made around the Holy Land. Paula entered the church built on the side of Mount Gerizim around Jacob's well. This is where the Lord sat thirsty and hungry and was satiated by the faith of the woman of Samaria. Yeah, Mm. so there, 
Jerome is combining a really positive interpretation of John 4. Jesus is satiated, he's filled and satisfied by this woman's faith with Paula's own um, Christian discipleship and praise for her. That's so good. That's a beautiful yeah. quote. And a, mm -hmm. again, a great way to sort of see the story from a new angle. Mm -hmm. Yes. What might be a final word of, of encouragement or challenge that you would have for listeners as they're considering looking at the Bible in new ways, looking mm -hmm. at their churches, how they, the role of women in their church, what might be a final word you might offer? Mm, I would say take courage in the journey. <laughs> there are, um, it's not a new journey to be on. I would say that as well, that in the example of Paula and the example of other women interpreters, in fact, that I discuss in the book, um, coming again to a story like the Samaritan woman and looking at it in a different way. This is a longstanding tradition within the church of questioning and challenging some of the assumptions that we bring to the text and thinking about what we might learn from it if we look again, look anew, <laughs> be fresh in our approaches. Um, I'd also say to be encouraged to not be afraid of questioning some of the assumptions we make. Um, of course, whenever someone comes up with a revolutionary new way to read scripture, we want to be a little cautious and say, do you have good evidence for this? Is there, is there um, a good argument being made here? Does it fit within Christian orthodoxy? I think those are really important questions to ask. At the same time, I think we shouldn't be afraid to ask these questions and to wonder if we've missed something because of who we've been reading the text with or what we've been bringing to the text ourselves as readers. 100%, that's so good. Where can listeners go to find more of your work? Of course, I'll have a link to the book in the description mm -hmm. below, but where else could we send them to connect more with what you're up to? Um, yeah, so certainly you can connect with me through Westmont College. Um, if you have specific questions, I'm really happy to engage with people about this project or others. Um, I've also written often for Bible Study Magazine in the past, so that would be another good resource. Um, the rest of my work tends to be a little bit more academic, so I don't know <laughs> how interested people get on <laughs> some of the nitty gritty details of New Testament interpretation. <laughs> yeah, hey, that can be fun stuff. That's where, yeah, the, that's absolutely. where the things come out of that space. So that's really great. So we will have links to those below. Karen, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, wow, thank you so much for this book. Thank you so much. I've really appreciated this conversation. All right, uh, blessings. And to you. Hey friends, Phil here again. Before you go, I just wanted to thank you once again for joining us for this episode today. I highly recommend checking out the show notes, the description below to find links to different things discussed in this episode, as well as to go deeper with Rua Space. Whether it's Patreon, where we have exclusive content and you can help support the podcast and the ministry, to setting up a free one-on-one -on -one spiritual direction call to discuss if spiritual direction would be right for you, what that process is. Is, what that is like, as well as our Christian Yoga YouTube channel and our Christ-Centered Yoga memberships with over 100 videos designed to help you grow in your relationship with God, feel more connected, 
feel more present and hopefully feel a little better in your body as well. And finally, friends, if you enjoyed this episode today, we would be greatly honored and blessed if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us know how we are doing as well as reach more people. So friends, thank you again for being with us today. We pray that you are blessed, challenged, and encouraged. And until next time, grace and peace be with you. 